Welcome to the 78th edition of The Power of Three, a Doctor Who podcast which every week, well, most weeks, um, well, okay, some weeks, features a trio talking about all things Time Lord. This week is no different, but at the same time, it's completely different, and that makes absolutely no sense unless, of course, you're me, Kenny Smith, and you know what's coming up over the next 35 minutes or so. Normally, on The Power of Three, we tend to discuss three Doctor Who stories or share our memories of what it means to be a Doctor Who fan, whether going to see live stage productions, buying VHS tapes, meeting actors from the show or attending exhibitions. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. This week, we're sort of following up on our recent episode regarding the second Ninth Doctor Adventures box set, Respond to All Calls, which featured Girl Deconstructed, a story which was set in Scotland. As we are a Scottish podcast, I thought, in a change from the norm, we could have a wee chat with a couple of the people involved in its production. Sadly, Christopher Eccleston was unavailable due to the fact that I didn't actually ask him. So, instead, we're going to start this week with a wee blether, as we say up here, with its writer. So, hello Lisa McMullen and welcome to The Power of Three. Hello, thank you for having me. Hang on, it's called The Power of Three, but there's only two of us. Ah, but Person Three will be speaking with me later. Ah. And you will find out who that is when the episode goes out, but until then, it's a surprise. I'm glad that your maths work, though. That's that's good. That's that's always a good sign. Oh, I'm on it. (laughs) All over it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on to have a wee chat today about Girl Deconstructed. Yes, very exciting. I've been thinking about how much I love this script, but I didn't know that I loved it until people didn't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> You've been a Doctor Who fan for quite a good few years, haven't you? Yeah, since I was, well, I can't remember when I wasn't. I watched it from the word, you know, as soon as I could watch it. As soon as I yeah. watched TV, I remember watching Doctor yeah. Who. What is your first Doctor Who memory? It's... Sitting with, I don't know the episode because I was only little, tiny. I was sitting with my dad and it was a Tom Baker episode. And I remember being really terrified by the actual opening music, Mm -hmm. but loving it. And that was the first connection between fear and sheer joy, which I got from Doctor Who, which you then sort of chase for the rest of your life, that adrenaline rush of... (gasps) something scary but it's okay I'm in a safe place because I was sat on my dad's knee and because I was very small this wasn't like last week (laughs) (laughs) good I'm glad we had that clarified Lisa that's very very good (laughs) and I don't remember the details of what the episode was but the but watching the opening credits for the first time and it freaking me out is really vivid and I can remember the position of the chair in the living room and the carpet and and sitting there on my dad's knee so it's a really it was a really lovely cozy but terrifying little nugget but that's what hooked me just the opening music yeah gets us all I mean my first memory is Invasion of Time episode six when the doctor pushes K9 mark two into the control room or the console room I've been having that debate on Twitter don't understand how people actually remember the the episode the first episode that they watched and the story of it how can you Retrospect and hindsight is literally just such a clear image of the doctor pushing the cardboard box with K9 Mark II into the console room and then just looking at the camera and giving it that big famous toothy grin. So, (laughs) 
That's how I remember it. It's literally just that moment. That's a real, I always wonder if these are real, actual, genuine memories or we retrofit them to, to oh, no. suit. Oh, having... no. Definitely real, because the, the first time I saw it in VHS, it was like, oh, my God, I know exactly what that is. Yeah. And that must have been about funny. 91, so I'd have been 17 or, t- or so at the time. So it was a memory from 13 years previously, yeah. just unlocked. I'm when... really jealous of people who have that, because I, 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 really, I genuinely have no idea what that first episode was. Can't remember, which is awful, but you know, it's all there. My memory is appalling, so <laughs> well, <laughs> but I'm I glad you're this feeling <laughs> rather than the detail. Yeah, well, I'm anyway. glad you at least remember to join us today. That's a good sign. So your memory's not that bad. <laughs> you mentioned childhood's fears and terrors there, and of course that's something that fed into Girl Deconstructed, which I remember yeah. you told me about it for Vortex, and it's very much that sort of Stephen Moffat thing of what's something that scared you in childhood, and then develop it and make it into something amazing in adulthood. So if you could maybe just tell the listeners what that scary thing was. Yeah, um, so when I was tiny, tiny, about, must have been about two years old, so I was a toddler, I used to like to sit on the windowsill upstairs in my parents' house, well, it was my house, obviously, at the time. <laughs> um, and there were no child safety locks or crazy gadgets back then. It was, you know, it was the late 70s. If, if, you, if you didn't watch out, you're dead. Um, so my parents used to drum into me that if I opened the window, then I might fall out and then, they'd never, and then I'd never see them again. And in my head, I didn't understand, I didn't have any concept of death. I just thought that we'd all still be existing in the same house. It's just that I would no longer be able to see them and make contact with them so that we'd be existing in in the same world, but without being able to contact each other, which used to terrify me. So I didn't open the window because I didn't want to never be able to. I thought I'd, I thought I'd like be like a ghost in my own house. And that's where the idea for Girl Deconstructed came from. The idea that you're in the same room with somebody, you're in the same space, but you just can't make a connection. Absolutely terrifying. That's, of course, you've done quite a few Big Finish scripts by the time you came to do this. What do you remember about how you first started writing for Big Finish? After lots of harassing of poor Matt Fitton, <laughs> begging <laughs> and pleading. <laughs> um, so I started with Survivors that series I didn't start they didn't let me loose on Doctor Who straight away so I wrote a script for Survivor Series 8 I think it was 8 8 the penultimate episode for that and really loved it really enjoyed it because it's such a different medium to writing for theatre or television because it's all audio and that was a big learning curve because you're learning how to communicate without visuals because it gets drummed into you as a screenwriter show don't tell <laughs> that's useless when it comes to audio drama because if you show don't tell there's just white noise for <laughs> an hour but yeah and then then I got my first Doctor Who which was the Emancipation uh, 8th of March International Women's Day set which was a River and Leela story which was brilliant so that was an a that was a crazy intro to the world of Doctor Who because Suddenly I'm sat in a recording studio and you've got Louise Jameson on one side and Alex Kingston on the other and little fangirl me just squeeing in the middle of the two of them. (laughs) Marvellous. And of course, out of the blue, you got the email from Matt 
asking you to write for the ninth doctor that must have been mm. such a jaw-dropping oh my god i can't believe this moment so exciting because they'd been trying and trying and trying for so long and i think they'd been chatting to chris and and his people for for quite a while so we there were sort of rumblings in the atmosphere <laughs> like that moment before the TARDIS materializes when you just sense a disturbance in the <laughs> in the continuum um but then yeah to actually get to do it because I think just because he he was only on screen for one series and his return had been so anticipated and we thought it would never happen and he brought back Doctor he brought it back like he yeah he regenerated it in every sense and so yeah that was so exciting. I think it was a case of you were asked to pitch some ideas of which Girl Deconstructed was one. Yes I originally had an idea for a historical which I really wanted to do but um, somebody else had got in there first. Darn it Tim Foley with his fright motif genius. So I'd pitched a couple of other ideas and <clears throat> I really wanted to do something that was totally in keeping with the feel of the television series so that really evoked that that first series that could fit in with the, the TV show in, in terms of tone. And I realised only a couple of days ago that actually it's the first and the only Big Finish script that I've written that doesn't come with any other baggage attached um, baggage. I mean, like, there's no story arc. It's self-contained. I was given no other characters that had to be included. It was just purely think of a story for the Ninth Doctor and off you go. Um, so it felt really special because it was just, it was just, it was just mine, <laughs> mine alone. And it doesn't, and I, I really enjoyed that about this set that you've got these three very distinct stories that all really feel like they could fit into that Eccleston TV era but they you can take them completely on their own and just enjoy them for a 45 minute of drama. At what point did the decision to set it in Dundee pop into your head? I think it was Matt's idea, Matt Fitton, because I think I originally I'd wanted to go northwest of England because that's where I was always drawn back to and then obviously Chris is from Salford um but I think at the time we were trying to take him away from the north of England just because just give him other places to go and I think it was Matt that suggested Dundee but it was always going to be as soon as he said that it was it was I didn't I wrote it once we decided where it was going to be said it was never going to be anywhere else and then we just could only get Scottish actors, so we changed it. <laughs> I hear that there's um, one or two of them around. There's plenty of them. It really irks me. I was watching Vigil on BBC One uh, last night, and there's a character, one of the main characters in it is um, Scottish, but not played by a Scottish actor. And it just That sort of thing drives me nuts, because why would you not just cast people who are authentic? Anyway, we digress. <laughs> back, back to Dundee absolutely how was the writing process for you I'd imagine that this is one that once you've started on it it's just you'd have so much energy and would just be that's it you know focus and the excitement of the Eccleston factor as well 
it was massive. It was, the turnaround was incredibly, incredibly quick because Chris said yes. And then obviously we wanted to make sure that we got them done <laughs> before he changed his mind again. And it was lockdown and we didn't know whether it was a really good time for a big finish lockdown. So, you know, some some pluses to the pandemic <laughs> in that lots of actors couldn't film. So they were trapped in their houses. It was great <laughs> because we got them to record stuff for us. But I wrote it in a time in my life where my mind was absolutely, well, it was in pieces, very like mine. And I was having some, there's a lot of heart and personal stuff in there that I don't think could have been written at any other time of my life. Um, but it, it's a bit of a blur, the writing process, because it was such a stressful time that it almost uh, it was like an out-of-body experience. This is why I genuinely wasn't sure if it was any good until people didn't tell me it was the worst thing they'd ever heard because I just, it was written at, at such a turbulent time in my life that, and the world's life <laughs> that I thought, oh, my God, this could be awful. I could just ruin it. Maybe he'll read this script and then that'll be it. <laughs> he won't do any more Big Finish. Uh, I really need to chill out a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it's well, tremendous. Um, and it's, we'll come to that in a second. Were you able to watch the recording or listen into the recording when it was taking no, place? It was just, it was not. I, I, my, uh, my domestic circumstances was, were such that, weirdly, I wrote it while I was living back in my childhood bedroom, which was bizarre. So I could see the window. I couldn't get out the window. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I was in the environment that inspired the story, but it wasn't practical to be part of the recording process, which is gutting. I'd really hope that if I do some more for, for him, that I can wangle my way into the recording because that's so fun. So then, of course, the first you'd have heard it then would have been when it was released. We'll talk specifically about the story and the cast. You must have been delighted the way, the way they brought it to life, particularly I think Mirren Mack gives it such a heart. Oh my God, she's brilliant. She's so good. Yeah, just perfect. The whole cast are absolutely fabulous. They just get such... I think, again, we were really lucky in that <laughs> actors were trapped. <laughs> there was nowhere for them to go. Yeah, just all of them are absolutely brilliant actors. They always make it so much more than you can even begin to anticipate. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and a great job as well from Helen as director just bringing it giving it such life and energy so good and so difficult as well because you're directing people remotely and people are recording things in different parts of the country and to to get that sense of a real tight bunch of actors working together when they're not in all in the same room yeah just she's she's done an absolute sterling job with with these all power to her. Yeah, and of course, let's play a quick clip from Christopher Eccleston now. It's absolutely brilliant, this script. This script should be televised. It's incredibly concise, so easy to perform. It's so rich in human content, and yet that's balanced out with a beautiful, science fiction element which is the um the seraphim and i've just realized it sounds like seraphim cherubim and seraphim it's a 
absolutely brilliant script. That must have been quite <laughs> amazing when you heard that, when Chris was saying these amazing things about your script. Well, do you know what? While they were actually recording it, I got a flurry of emails from David Richardson saying, oh, my word, Chris has just said this about your script. So I, I'd had that sense of relief that, OK, he doesn't hate it because <laughs> he'd said some really nice things, which, you know, they don't have to. They're just there to do a job. But I really want to work out a way to get that as my ringtone. Because <laughs> Although nobody else would know what, what he was blithering on about, I would know. And um, yeah, really kind, really, really kind. If I never do write another thing ever again, then I will go to my grave delighted just because of that little snippet from him. <laughs> Are you iPhone or Android? I am Android. Oh, Leave it with me. You'll have said clip by the time this podcast is released. Really? Oh, oh yeah. my God. I will email it to you. I will, I will, you will have that later on. So there we go. That's a, a we thank you for your time today. Yay. So Woohoo. <laughs> Excellent. And just hearing the finished production, just with the music and sound design, you must be so proud of it because I think it's a universal love and acclaim across fandom, which is not something you get that often as any Doctor Who script would ever get. I can always find time. It's, it's awful. Do you know what? As a writer, it's just, uh, I wonder if actors do it as well. But I can always find the slightest, tiniest, not entirely positive comment in a swathe of, you could give me a whole swathe of amazing, glowing reviews, and my eye will hone in on <laughs> a tiny, tiny little nugget of somebody saying, ah, well, I would have quite liked this, or, oh, it's such a shame they didn't do that. It's just something about keeps you grounded, but also it just makes you completely neurotic. <laughs> well, I can guess who that person was. They probably came from Perth because Perth and Dundee have a rivalry. So that's what it'll be. It'll be an envy. It should have been set in Perth. That's what their problem will be. As easy as that. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's usually just relief when people don't hate things. That, the, that's all, all I'm going for. Non-hatred. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Although there's also then the worry that you then will never write anything nearly as good again. It's just terrible being a writer. They're just little balls of neuroses and paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I believe there's some rather good stuff coming up from you, so. Well, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see, indeed. We'll Look, see. Lisa, thank you so much for your time today and joining us on The Power of Three. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was fun. So that's Lisa. And you can follow her on Twitter, where she's at Lisa McMullen. That's L-I-S-A-M-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. I recommend you do, because she's my friend and she's brilliant. And talking of brilliant friends, it's time to meet our second guest. Let's say greetings to the director of Girl Deconstructed. Hello, Helen Goldwyn. Hello, Kenny. <laughs> good to be here. Yes, thank you for joining us on The Power of Three today. And it's always good fun to have a catch up with a pal. <laughs> Let's have a wee chat about Girl Deconstructed. Casting mm. your mind back, do you recall your reaction when you were asked to direct this box set? Oh, absolutely, yeah, because I had no expectation of that at all. And I had been thrilled when I heard that Christopher was going to come and do some dramas with Big Finish, mostly because I really wanted him to have a great time as 
almost everyone has a great time doing a big finish drama and because we all know that you know there were there were highs and lows to his time on the tv show i thought it'd be great if he can come and just love playing this part and and have a fantastic experience and then when David Richardson (laughs) emailed me and said oh would you fancy um directing Chris in a couple of series I was absolutely gobsmacked I'd not even fantasized about anything like that so yeah thrilled thrilled and delighted yeah so when you're told that a story is going to be set in Scotland is that something that excites you or does it fill you with dread having to find an all Scots (laughs) cast it doesn't do either actually I suppose what it does is it makes me interested by the challenge because it it was a particular challenge this time because we are we were still in the throes of Covid and lockdown when we started not only is it the right actor with the right accent but it's the right actor with the right accent and with a home studio which narrows it down quite considerably. Although loads and loads and loads of actors have obtained home studios during lockdown and and that's changed the whole landscape of of what we do, actually. But at the time, there weren't that many. So yes, there's a slightly restrictive side to to casting it. And also that it's set in Dundee. So Lisa McMullen had obviously prescribed in the script it's a Dundee accent and I'm I don't really know it's hard for me to differentiate <laughs> a Dundee accent and a Glaswegian and a, I mean I'm sure to someone who, who comes from those places it would be very very clear but in the acting world as, as an actor I would say well I do a general Scottish <laughs> I do a general Scottish accent which is probably deeply offensive to anyone who actually comes from Scotland. Um, although half my family is Scottish, so that's fine. I'm, I'm allowed. <laughs> but yeah, obviously the, the aim is always get people who are genuinely Scottish. Loads of actors can say that they can do Scottish and we've got some brilliant English actors who, who can do the accent very well. But in an ideal world, you're always going to want people who are native Scottish, Yeah, which is what we got. Yeah, indeed. I'll tell you one weird thing about the Dundee accent. Mm. Londonians will not say the word pie. They will say <laughs> they will say pay, as in P A Y. Oh. I'm going to have a pay. My it's brother-in-law's like a, pay. a pay. There you go. My brother-in-law's from Dundee, so I can say oh. that. Dundonians. Well, it's a bit late now. <laughs> Well, there I'm weren't sure we've many... got some I sounds that we haven't there... covered in that way. Well, there weren't many pies in the story, so you're absolutely fine. Phew. <laughs> so what led you to each of the cast members? I mean, obviously Forbes Masson is, is well known in Scotland, and we've got a rising star in Mirren Mac as well. Yes. I think it's, for all I can work on is my instinct. I, I try not to look at people's photographs really I try and sort of glaze over those it's all about the voice and the energy and the characterization behind the voice when you're casting these characters and they're just going to be playing these characters they're not cross cast so they're not going to be doubling up then you can go for someone whose natural voice is exactly what you want it's very different casting other things sometimes where you know you're going to need an actor that can play three distinctly different characters with different accents then you're going to go for an actor that is very well established as a versatile voice. But when you're casting characters like these, you just want to hear their natural voice and go, yep, that's how I picture the character. And so with all of these actors, when I heard the second I heard their voice, I thought, yes, particularly Mirren, you know, she was so perfect for Marnie. 
And I'd listened to lots of young voices by the time I came to hers and thought, oh, there we go, got you. <laughs> and then it's just a case of trying to pin those actors down because, of course, they're all so busy and, and in demand because they're all so brilliant. So we were very lucky to get them. I think it's a great cast. And I, I think it, there's a real, I mean, I think between Forbes and Merrin, there's that you can, there, there, there is that sort of familial feel, even obviously they're a father and daughter at war with one yeah. another, but you can still feel that, that yes. bond. Oh, there. The, I think there's a warm yeah it's all it's all in the chemistry and that's something you can't plan for you hope that it's going to be there but a big part of my job is actually not so much to tell people how to say the lines I, I totally trust that actors know how to say lines it's to create an environment where everyone feels relaxed and confident and connected and friendly with each other and that is just as important as the the delivery of the lines because you know the more confident and relaxed people feel that the better the chemistry yeah you mentioned there about people feeling relaxed how tough was it to record remotely to create that atmosphere with cast members being all over the country <coughs> and i'd imagine there would be a case of having to get everyone in sync and knowing what the internet's like there might have been wee delays here and there yeah, I mean, I think we were quite lucky on this particular production that everyone was technically on it. I don't think we had kind of lag with the internet or anyone who didn't know how to use their studio. I mean, obviously, recording remotely, we've had unbelievable amounts of technical hitches and bless the actors, you know, actors don't necessarily want to be doing their own technical arrangements while they're performing. I know when I'm, I've been recording acting during lockdown, even though I'm very familiar with how my studio works, it's a different part of the brain that's engaged. Like if I'm acting, that's just words and feelings. And if I'm doing, having to press stop and save, that's almost like the mathematical side of my brain. And I find it really hard to swap from one to the other. And I think there are a lot of actors that, that feel the same way. So yeah, we have had real challenging technical mishaps on almost every recording I've ever done remotely but this one just flowed beautifully and yeah I can't I don't think we had anything that really held us up so then when it's flowing and and everyone can hear each other it's really not that different to being in separate booths in the same studio because once you're in the studio you can't see each other so it just feels the same. It's only when we get technical hitches that everyone thinks, oh God, we're recording remotely and this is tedious. Can you maybe tell us a wee bit about working with Christopher Eccleston? Because I think for many of us as fans, he just seems to be this amazing figure that's, you know, that's up there and just think he's like the doctor who we never thought we would get back. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard to describe it, really. Obviously, he's an incredible actor. And when you're working with people who are so spontaneous and who are so instinctive, that's thrilling to be around. And obviously, his energy is thrilling and his commitment to doing this and making it as good as it can possibly be is wonderful. I think the main challenge for him and for me was that we knew we would be doing a few episodes together and working over periods of days. And so we couldn't see each other. I mean, I think in the end, we built up a very nice, trusting relationship and a really good kind of dynamic and energy between us. But if he passed me in the street, he wouldn't know it was me. <laughs> I'd be, hello, hello, Chris. No, it's me. <laughs> so, but uh, hopefully there'll be uh, future occasions where we will work together and face to face. We shall have to wait and see. Uh, maybe I'll send him a photo and say... 
that's who was directing you. <laughs> but yeah, it's strange to just get to know someone uh, without doing the whole relaxing in the breaks, you know, having lunch together that we normally have in the studio. Yeah. How did it feel when the edits were coming in with Eden Meadows' brilliant sound design and Howard Carter's score? It never gets boring. I mean, when you listen to it for the first time with everything added into the dialogue, I'm still in awe of what everyone else on the team brings to the to the project. I mean, obviously, Ian and Howard are absolute legends <laughs> in our world and seem to do it so effortlessly, although I know it isn't effortless. I know that certainly Ian in particular puts so much effort and uh, thought and he's the most conscientious person I think I've ever I've ever known he cares so much that every moment is perfect and it really shows yeah for me it's completely thrilling listening to it for the first time maybe by the third listen not quite so thrilling because I'm having to listen in a different way to someone who's just bought it for pleasure I'm still listening for any little mishaps or any little kind of clicks in the edit but eventually by the final master then I can sit back and relax and enjoy it and the story had such great acclaim online that must be so pleasing for you yeah it's always quite nerve wracking before it comes out because particularly with this one, because the expectation and the desire, the appetite for it was so huge. And you think we just don't want to disappoint anyone. And, and if anything, you want to exceed people's expectations, of course. And coming on the, off the back of Ravagers, which I know was a love project for, for Nick Briggs and so much love and care had been put into that. It was the launch pad. And, and obviously that had a fantastic response as well. So we've got to almost top that. It's quite a big it's like the sequel, isn't it? The sequel's got to be, you know, just as good, if not better. But yeah, we were at a massive advantage because of these three incredible scripts. As a starting point, we couldn't really go wrong unless unless I did my job very badly. <laughs> It'd be hard to, to mess, it, mess it up because these writers have just delivered something so fantastic. And of course, for those who don't know, this isn't the first story that you've worked on that's set north of the border for Big Finish. Some of our listeners may not know about your Tomorrow People work. Ah, yes. Well, yeah, because we did that for 10 years. And of course, I wrote an episode of, of the Tomorrow People that was set in the Shetland Isles. And I did so much research, ridiculous amounts of research, because I always think, well, if there's someone listening who lives in the Shetland Isles and I've described the lighthouse wrong or I've described the wildlife wrong, that's going to upset them. <laughs> So I have to make sure it's all perfect. And in a way, I think in the back of my mind when I wrote that one, it's because one of my oldest friends from college, we went to performing arts college together, Lewis Ray, is from the Shetland Isles. And I knew I wanted to write him a role. I'd promised him when we were very young. I said, one day I'll write you a fantastic part. And this felt like the perfect opportunity. So I wrote this character specifically for him to play this kind of merman, part man, part merman character who's going through a a strange transition and trying to save the environment and he came in and recorded that for us so I in a way I think subliminally I, I set it on the Shetland Isles just so I could give Lewis <laughs> but I did learn a lot about the the area and would love to go and visit I still haven't been up and visited no I've never been either and it's it's currently looking for a head teacher in one of the schools there oh. on an island they only have three pupils <gasps> oh my goodness can you imagine <laughs> I know talk about an easy life <laughs> 
Yeah, sort of. I know that cruise ships are doing more, many, many more cruises around the British Isles now because of COVID, because people don't want to go abroad necessarily and, and risk being quarantined. So people are taking cruises. My mum just did one. She went right up to the Orkney Islands and, and round again and took in Shetland Isles, took in Orkney. That seems like a really good way of doing it. So maybe I'll look at doing that one day. Helen, if people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter at Helen Goldwyn and I'm on Facebook. I think it's called Helen Goldwyn, composer, director, writer, something like that. (laughs) One of those things. But yeah, if you look up Helen Goldwyn on Facebook, you'll get two things. One is my private one and one is my uh, public one. I don't really, I'm on Instagram, but I don't do Instagram. I haven't worked out how to do it, but I suppose it's one of those many things I ought to try. And I'm on LinkedIn as well, if you want to see about all my corporate work. (laughs) Absolutely. And do you still have your YouTube channel? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got a YouTube channel. If you want to see um, songs that I've written, I'm a composer of mostly comedy songs, novelty, kind of quirky comedy songs, sort of in the style of, uh, not in the style of Victoria Wood, but along the same lines, writing about life, life and everything we know about it in a comedic way. And yeah, there's some funny stuff on there. If you want to see me dressed as Wonder Woman, go to YouTube, Helen Goldwyn. (laughs) (laughs) I can definitely recommend some yeah. fab songs in there. Not just the Wonder <laughs> Woman you. outfit, just to clarify. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Helen, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure as always. Ah, My pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you as always, Kenny. Thank you for having me on. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Power of Three Pod. That's Power of Three with the number three rather than being written out in full. We also have a Facebook page, so please feel free to pop by like the page, and share your thoughts on our episodes. So Kenny, before we go today, what are we going to play out with? Well, Helen, I'm glad you asked me that, because given that we've been talking about a very Scottish Doctor Who story today, why don't we go with something that really couldn't be any more Scottish? Let's go with the Proclaimers. I'm going to be, open brackets, 500 miles, close brackets. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. When I wake up... Well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you. If I get drunk, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I heave yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's heavering to you. But I will walk by. Thank you.